Well, really good to see all of you here this morning. If you want to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ruth, if you're new with us, my name is Grant Call. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. We are going through the book of Ruth. We're in Ruth chapter 1. This is a big weekend for us. Uh, last week, I had a, one of the college guys tell me that the book of Ruth was his favorite book. And I said, really? And then he began to tell me why it was one of his favorites. This book, the book of Ruth, it's kind of like an iceberg. You know, in an iceberg, you see the top 10%, but you really don't see all that's underneath. If you just do a superficial reading of the book of Ruth, you're going to miss the deep truths and gospel realities that are found in this book. And this weekend has been a great weekend for all of our students. They're all over here, and you're wide awake, right? I'm going to be checking on you. Okay. And they have been talking about what does it mean to follow God. And all I'd like to do in our time together is to address this issue. What does it mean to follow God in a fallen world? And I'd like to present to you four truths. And what I'm going to give you, I want you to know, I wish I would have heard this really early on in my walk with God after I became a believer in college. And maybe someone told me some of these things and I just wasn't paying attention, but I'd like to pass on to you some things that I found to be most important for following God in a fallen world. And the first thing we're going to do as we look at one of the great believers in the Bible, a woman by the name of Ruth, is you need to know this. Your faith in God will develop and define you. So let me just kind of review where we've been in the book of Ruth. So you got this couple by the name of Elimelech and Naomi. They're living in Israel, but God said, listen, we're in a covenant relationship. You follow me, you walk with my word, you honor me, you worship from the heart. You don't stick it on autopilot. I want you to know I'm going to continue to bless you. I will fill your life with joy and meaning, purpose, hope, peace. But on the other hand, if you decide that you're going to just absorb the little gods of this world, you're going to become just kind of like a pseudo-believer. You're going to go through the motions, but you don't have heart. You're going to rebel against me. You sin willingly. You never confess it. I want you to know I have a way of getting your attention. I will bring judgment to your land. And in this case, it wasn't a pandemic or a pestilence, but rather it was a famine. And this famine was so severe that this couple, Elimelech and Naomi, decided that they would move with their two boys into the land of Israel's enemy, Moab. And so they did. They made the 50-mile journey. They settled there. But things went from bad to worse when they were in Moab. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. And so not only are they foreigners in this, this foreign world, the enemies of Israel, and they stand out, but now Naomi is alone with her boys, and her two boys then decide to take matters in their own hands, and they go ahead and they marry two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And you're like, big deal. It is a big deal, because the Moabites' chief deity was a god called Kamish. He was worshipped through child sacrifice. And if you're a prospective grandmother and you have daughter-in-laws who are worshippers of a god who is worshipped through child sacrifice, this about as bad as it gets. And then to make matters even far more complicated and even more deeply depressing, her two boys, Naomi's two boys, die leaving her with her two daughter-in-laws. It is in the land of Moab. They've been there for 10 years. 
that Naomi hears the testimony that God has brought bread and food to the land of Israel. And so she journeys back. She has her two daughter-in-laws in tow, and they're making that 50-mile journey back. And it's midway that Naomi then tells Orpah and Ruth, listen, girls, you go back. You go back to your mama. You go back to her home. You get remarried. You go on with your life. May God bless you, but I'm done with you. I want you to go back. She makes this case, and they're like, no, 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 we're going to go with you. And they're crying and shedding some tears out there in the middle of the desert. And so we pick it up in verse 14. She makes another plea, and it gets real tearful out there. And in verse 14, chapter 1, and they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And so Orpah, why, she did the logical thing. It made sense. This is what her mother-in-law was telling her to do. Go back. And so Orpah dries her eyes. She says her goodbyes. And she heads back to Moab, to the pagan deities, to this life of darkness. But in stark contrast to Orpah, you've got Ruth. And Ruth is not just standing there. But did you see that in verse 14? She is clinging to her. This isn't like just kind of softly, like kind of putting your hand on your arm, kind of like that. No, this is like grabbing hold, not letting go. For Ruth, I want you to know there has been a tremendous conversion and change in her heart. In fact, she goes on to talk about this. Naomi's like, you've got to get out of here, Ruth. What are you doing? Look at verse 15. Then she said, behold, your sister-in-law, Orpah, she's gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. You go back there. You can catch up with her. There she is. Get out of here. Go. But listen to Ruth. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. I want you to know, Ruth presents this in theological terms. She's saying, I can't go back. Yeah, I may have been born and raised in paganism. I may have been living a life of Moab and abiding in their culture, a culture that was opposed to the one true God, but I am different now. I am changed. I know God, and you cannot persuade me to leave you. I am literally a changed person. Do not ask me to leave. And you're like, wow, what happened here? I'll tell you what happened. Is that even though Ruth came into the family and she had been a false God worshiper, she saw in being a part of this family, she saw what it means to know God. She had heard the scriptures read, the history of the people of Israel and God's faithfulness. And I want you to know that Naomi and her family they did not give a perfect example. I'm sure there were some times like this didn't make sense. Well, like, yeah, if your God's so good, then what are you doing here in Moab? But I want you to know that despite the fact that uh, Naomi and Elimelech and her two boys didn't give a perfect example, when you live in darkness, just a little bit of light can go a long ways. I know this from firsthand experience. And Ruth says, listen, I want you to know I have changed. I have a relationship with the one true God. 
You cannot make me go back. To use New Testament language, it's as if Ruth is declaring that she has found the pearl of great price. She is literally a changed individual. And she says so much so, verse 17, listen to this, where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, of anything but death parts you and me. She is saying, I'm not going back. In fact, she says, I want you to know, God, may God bring death to my life if I leave you and forsake the words that I just said, that your God is now my God. I want you to know that God brings his mercy to some of the most unlikely people in some of the most unlikely places. Perhaps that's your story. You remember the baptisms that we had just even a few weeks ago? Remember those three high school girls from Kyrgyzstan who gave testimony of how they came to know Jesus in that process? That journey from a Kyrgyzstan orphanage to here in the States to giving testimony before all of us? That's how God works. God has just performed an amazing rescue mission. He rescued Ruth in the middle of Moab, and brought her into a saving relationship with himself. And so she makes this declaration in verse 18. And when Naomi saw this, she saw that Ruth was determined to go with her. She said no more to her. You see that word determined? It means to be fully devoted to a course of action. This isn't a whim. This isn't just something, well, I think I need to say something here. This is kind of one of those moments I'll see what comes out of my mouth. I want you to know that she had deeply thought about these matters. She is like what you read about in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Remember the Thessalonians, how they had turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God. That's what's going on with Naomi. This is a mile marker moment for Ruth. Her life has been radically changed by her relationship with the one true living God. So often when we read the book of Ruth, we're like, oh, oh, that's so nice. And they just kind of like, oh, just kind of keep moving on here. I want you to know this is life-changing not only for Ruth. We're going to find out it's going to be life-changing for Naomi. It's going to be life-changing for Bethlehem where they're going back to. But it is going to change the course of history. This one girl, she's maybe a late teenager, early 20s. This conversion, this testimony, this declaration of her faith in God absolutely is going to change the course of history. Just hang on to see how God is going to work through her. And I want you to know in this life, there are going to be some opportunities for milestone moments. Times that can literally define and change the trajectory of your life. Like, for instance, when you truly trust the one true God, and that's exactly what we see Ruth doing, and I just have one question for you. Have you? Have you really trusted the one true God? You know, the same God, Yahweh, that Ruth has placed her faith in, He eventually sends his son, Jesus, into this world to live a perfect life, die as a perfect sacrifice on a cross 
is buried and is ri- rises again three days later to authenticate to the world that indeed he is God and that relationship with the one true God is found in him. Have you had a milestone moment where you have declared your faith from the heart that you're trusting in him? Is Jesus king of your heart, savior of your life, and the Lord who leads you? Let me give you the most familiar Bible verse in all the Bible. John 3.16. And you're like, oh, I know it. Seen it on TV. I've said it about a thousand times. I'd like you to hear it for the very first time and consider, is this your reality? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. My question is, where are you? Are you perishing because you have never truly trusted in Christ? Oh yeah, you may know about God. You've been in church a lot. You sing some of the right songs. Maybe you've got like 10 different Bibles to match your outfits and all that bit. Totally fine. If that works, that's where you need to be. That's fine. My question for you is, are you perishing without God? You've got knowledge, but you never trusted him. You've never truly repented and received him. Or are you believing in Jesus, receiving the Father's love, knowing his forgiveness, his life, his purpose, his peace, his eternity? Right now, this might be a milestone moment for you. You need to know that your faith in God will develop and define you. That's certainly what's happening with Ruth. There is no other explanation. But there's something even more going on here, and I want to point this out to you. Do you see that Ruth is actually giving her life priorities and values? Have you ever considered yours? What truly are your priorities, your life values? You know, if you've never taken the time to articulate these, write them down, think about them, I mean, really think them through, what happens is you just kind of go through life And culture will define it. Someone else will establish your priorities and values. But I want you to know that Ruth, she has given a lot of thought and attention to this. Uh, Karina and I last week uh, had a conversation with a college gal. And she was talking about some choices in her life of what's going on. And like, we're sitting there like, whoa. She was making some decisions. She said that I, I try to make my decisions based upon my relationship with Jesus and my values. My jaw just like, whoa. And I told her, I said, wow, that is so mature. I am so impressed that you are thinking at this level. This girl was like about 18 or 19 years old. And she already knows that her top value and priority in life is Jesus. And there are other priorities that she's already thought about. And she's making big decisions based on that. I'll tell you what, that is an uncommon young lady. I want to ask you, have you done that? You know, I'll tell you someone who has, Ruth has. Look at Ruth. Look at beginning in verse 16. I know you're familiar with these verses. Maybe they're even read at your wedding, but actually what she was doing here, she's articulating what she's been thinking about for so long, her life priorities, her values. Look at them. There's four of them. Verse 16. Her first one is loyalty to family. See that verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. 
For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Loyalty to family, second value, priority for her. Community with believers, your people shall be my people. Look at this third one. And your God will be my God. Fidelity to God. I tell you what, this is downright impressive that this young lady has thought through at this level. She is so thoughtful. And look at her fourth priority. Verse 17, responsibility for a lifetime. She says, where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. This isn't some sort of like whimsical saying, like just opening up her mouth and like, well, I think I better say something now. I want you to know she has thought about this deeply. I want to challenge you. If you know how to read, write, and think, to actually write out your life priorities, your values. What is really important to you? What is God impressing upon you? Let me tell you how I think you should do this. I think you should pray and talk to God. I think you should open up your Bible. And you might want to talk to a few wise Christians about processing. For the guys in my discipleship group, we've been spending a couple months working on life priorities so that we will be making decisions guided by what we believe God has called us to in this life. And I'll just give you mine, okay? This is just uh, by way of example. My heading on my life priorities is my life is my ministry, okay? I see all of my life as an integrated whole. I don't have like ministry here and then I just do something else, non-ministry. No, my life is my ministry, wherever I'm at, home, gym, church, store, on the road, in my neighborhood, my life is my ministry. And I just want to give you my priorities. My first one is a mature relationship with God. I don't want to be superficial. I want to know God intimately and deeply. I want to learn how to really pray and converse, to know God as friend. I want to read his word. I want to be a man of the book. I want to know truth. I want to hear from God from his scriptures. I want to meditate on his truth. I want maturity in my relationship with God. Let me give you my second priority, and that is to manifest the character of Christ. I don't want just to know truth. I want God to shine and show through my life, as imperfect as I might be. All my failures, short shortcomings, and idiosyncrasies I want to see God manifest the character of Christ through me and in me. Like what that looks like is being yielded to the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit coming from my life. Let me give you my third one. I want to have a meaningful relationship with my wife and my family. Okay, I've been a pastor for a little while, and I've seen a lot of marriages that basically settled into like a Cold War zone. And they just kind of are tolerating each other, and they just kind of make it through. I don't want that. I want to have a meaningful relationship with Karina and my family and my growing family, my kids, and even now my grandkids. Let me give you my fourth. And I want you to know that I've really struggled. This is probably the one I'm worst at, to maintain a healthy lifestyle. That healthy work-life balance where, yes, you've got Lots of work. There's no trouble there, man. I am very type A, hard charger, and I've got accountability partners that are trying to help me kind of rein it in because I have a tendency to basically sacrifice myself. 
by just working and working and investing and seeing all these opportunities and wanting to be involved. I want to live a balanced life. That means incorporating rest, exercise, eating pretty healthy. I mean, man, I just I hate the pantry about 10 o'clock at night. It's bedtime snack. My mother groomed me that way. But I want you to know I'm doing the best I can. I need to shed a few pounds, but I'm still working on it, okay? I want to live, though. One of my values is to maintain a healthy lifestyle. I want to be always growing spiritually and intellectually. And then the fine, final one for me is to be missional and meaningful in a disciple-making ministry, okay? I want my life to be focused on God's priorities. I want you to know that me being a pastor, even my preaching ministry, I see this as just an aspect of a disciple-making ministry of helping people come to know Christ and grow deep and mature in Him. Let me give you a few other priorities that I've heard from people in our church. To have the priority of being a good employee or to earn a living so I can support my family if you're married. Or here's another one, especially if you're retired, to finish well. Hey, if you're retired, you're never retired from walking with God and being involved in his ministry. And can I just encourage you, do not blow up your life at the end. Have some priorities and ask God for them to be a reality. But you need to understand something. Your faith in God will develop and define you in exactly what we see with Ruth. Let me give you another. Your friends and your family may not support you. I wish I would have fully understood that. I had some inkling before I placed my faith in Christ, but I, I had to find a lot, uh, find out a lot about that. I want you to know, so did Ruth. Look at verse 14. Remember that? When who takes off? Orpah does. Verse 14, and they lift up their voices, they wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and Ruth clung to her. Orpah is like Ruth's one friend from Moab, and she's gone. And furthermore, uh, look at what else takes place here. I mean, you would think that uh, Naomi would be like super excited about all this that's taking place. Absolutely not. Or at least verse 18, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Are you kidding me? Verse 18, Naomi should have been like, Ruth, that is awesome. I am so for you. I'm so encouraged. I want you to know I love you. I want to do everything I can to help you. No. Naomi goes, we're done talking. Are you kidding me? Wow, what a, wow, what a huge letdown if you are um, Ruth. And so, verse 19, so they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Here they are. They make their way back to Bethlehem, and they're like, that lady there, she looks like Naomi, who left about 10 years ago, but it can't be. Why, she's aged so much, and she walks differently, and her face, the voice sounds very familiar, but is this Naomi? Really? And she said to them, verse 20, do not call me Naomi. Her name means pleasant, lovely, a name signifying her character and her demeanor. Don't, don't call me lovely anymore. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. The word means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I'll tell you what, instead of life, 
and her response to her circumstances making her better, they made her bitter. It can happen to you. It may actually have already started. Pay attention to what's going on here. Pay attention to this book, the book of Ruth. And she says, verse 20, she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara for the Almighty, El Shaddai, the, the Almighty One, has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? I went out full. I had a family. I had a husband. I had two kids. I had resources. I'm coming back. Nothing. Empty. There's nothing to me. So she makes this declaration. The Almighty has afflicted me. I want you to think about this from Ruth's perspective. Ruth has left her entire family in Moab. All the friends, all her family, gone. No support there. Pretty sure they weren't really excited about Ruth being a follower of Yahweh, the one true God. Orpah, her one close friend, her sister-in-law, back to Moab. Sorry, had enough, we're done, I'm out of here. But then also consider Naomi. What would have been like if you were Ruth, standing right here with Naomi, and Ruth hears these words, I am empty. I have nothing. And Ruth is like, are you kidding me? I'm right here. Wait, I'm a believer. I'm following you. I'm caring for you. I'm supporting you. And you're sitting here, you're standing here saying, I'm empty. I've got nothing. I want you to know that would have been some really hard words for Ruth to hear. If you are walking with God in a fallen world, you need to know something. Your family and your friends, they may not support you. It was a couple-year process for me to really understand the gospel and what it means to have a relationship with Christ. And when I placed my faith in Jesus Christ at the end of my freshman year in college, do you know how many family members supported me and thought that was a really good idea? Ready for a big number? Zero. Not a one. In fact, it made some pretty unpleasant waves. And I even had some friends that actually preferred the old Grant, not this Grant who's now following Jesus. You need to know something. If you're going to follow Jesus in a fallen world, your friends and family members may not support you. And I want you to know that is hard, and at times it feels pretty lonely. But it's okay. You are going to have to learn how to handle this, though, just like Ruth did. Can I give you this principle? Do not let the people that have disappointed you destroy you. Do not let the people who disappoint you destroy you. You don't want to end up as some sort of jaded individual who like, that's it, I'm never going to trust anyone anymore, I'm going to just go into isolation here, I'm going to stiff arm people for the rest of my life. I want you to know that can easily happen. You get let down or you get hurt. If you don't know how to handle that, that could become your reality. Let me tell you how to handle it when people disappoint you or even seek to harm you. First, you want to follow God. 
You want to make that your priority. You're following him. Second, you need to leave the results and justice with him. The temptation is, you hurt me, I'll show you, I can hurt you, right? I want you to resist the temptation, follow God. Let me give you some verses that have been very helpful for me in this matter. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 19. It says this, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. What we want to do is we want to learn to leave it with him. Let me give you a third. So you don't just end up as a bitter person when people let you down. Find a way to forgive. God will give you the grace. He has given us the pattern, and that pattern is Jesus himself, and he'll help you do this. And fourth, trust God with your future and move forward. You can't change the past. You got to just trust God with your future and move forward. And if you've really taken some shots You've experienced betrayal, slander, libel. I want you to know that those are some of the most difficult experiences I've had to go through in my life. I'll tell you my playbook. And if you're going through something like that, or you think you might be, write down 1 Peter chapters 2 and 3. God will show you exactly how to live and what to do when you face those circumstances. And through Christ, he'll make that a reality, that relationship with him. You see, we follow God by living by faith. There's some truths that you need to know about following God in a fallen world. One, your faith in God is going to define and develop you. Two, you need to know this. Your friends and family may not support you. Here's a third. Your future will challenge you. You need to know this. You need to have your eyes wide open. Your future is going to challenge you, no exceptions. And so you look at it, look at verse 22. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And so here we have Ruth. All throughout this book, she is identified as Ruth the Moabitess. And you're thinking like, oh, big deal. No, that was a big deal. And that wasn't a term of endearment. To be from Moab was to be from Israel's enemies. Who is this girl? Why is she here? I want you to know she talked differently. She looked different in terms of her dress. Everyone knew that she was from Moab. She had some pretty significant obstacles in front of her. She was foreign from the land of Israel's enemy. She was barren meaning she seemingly couldn't have children. She was a widow. Her background was against her. Her circumstances were against her. Ruth has no real means of earning an income. She really has no hope of ever being married again because there's no father figure to kind of arrange a marriage. And who's going to want a girl from Moab, the land of Chemosh, child sacrifice? Not going to be a lot of folks looking to go in that direction, no matter what Ruth is saying. She's got serious issues. 
No security, no potential. She's got Naomi, but Naomi, what, Naomi in verse 18? She's not even talking to her. Furthermore, Naomi's going through a crisis. And here you've got Ruth. You need to know something. Your future, it's going to have some challenges. And let me just tell you where these challenges are going to come. You're you're not going to be exempt. You're going to have personal challenges. You will likely have family challenges. Will that be with your parents or extended family, siblings, or even your own kids? And it might take everything out of you. Let me tell you another area you're going to have challenges relationally. There are going to be some challenges in relationships that are going to bewilder you at times. And then the fourth, there are going to be societal challenges. Don't think that society and our culture is going to be super excited about you following Jesus. There are going to be challenges. I want you to know I've experienced all four of these, and it can take almost everything out of you. And, you know, we're, uh, we're living in an age right now where there are significant challenges facing Christians. And I'd like to present to you what I think are the significant issues facing Christians today. Let me give you, uh, I'm going to give you five. One is, for Christians, what really will be our source of authority? What will be your source of authority? You're going to have one. What will it be? Let me give you some options out there. Will it be societal trends? If you're really into being popular and like, I just really want to fit in, I want you to know societal trends are going to be out there. Here's another one. Will your source of authority be your personal truth? All right? This is my truth, right? Who can argue that? This is my truth. And I want you to know lots of people, even now Christians, are throwing that out. This is my truth, right? Let's think about that. Will your source of authority be people who will twist Scripture to fit cultural trends or their personal preference? I want you to know this is huge. We are watching this full throttle right now arguing that actually the Bible doesn't, what it says isn't what it really means, or it's on a trajectory for you to draw a different conclusion. Um, By the way, do you know what what the Bible calls people who take Scripture, twist it to their own ends, and want to do it under the banner of God or Christianity? They have, at least in the Bible, they're called false teachers, and they're going to come off nice and shiny and warm and welcoming, but I want you to know they will have a devastating effect in the church. They already have. Or will your source of authority be God and his revealed word? But I'll tell you, you're going to have to figure this out. By the way, do you remember how the Bible ends? Do you know what Jesus' last words are? They're a warning. This is the warning. You can read about it. You can take a look at the very last page, almost the very last verses. Do not add or subtract to this book. The consequences will be severe. Do not add or subtract. So one of the issues facing Christians today is, what is really going to be your source of authority? And it will be tested. Let me give you a second. What will be your core identity? Where do you find your central identity? Will it be in your accumulated resources? Will it be in your titles, accomplishments? Will it be in what you look like, you know, your appearance? Will it be your popularity? Or will your core identity, and this is such a push, to fit into the aspirations of the culture, 
And like, hey, I really approximate that. I look like it. I talk like it. I've got, I embrace the values of the age, the spirit of the age. Will that be your core identity? Or will your core identity be Jesus Christ, him crucified and risen from the dead? That is going to be a big issue. There are all sorts of churches, and they may have crosses, and they may have had a beautiful past, but they're just a shell, and they're filled with people whose core identity is not Jesus Christ, but it's almost anything else. I'll tell you, it's a huge issue facing facing Christians today. Let me give you a third. Your degree of integrity. This is a huge, significant issue facing Christianity today. Your degree of integrity. And I'm talking about personal integrity. How you handle yourself publicly and privately. Perhaps even more important, privately. When, when you think no one's watching. Your ability to understand biblical ethics and live by them. Your ability to speak the truth, to be honest. That you have holiness of life. That you're not living a compromised life. I want you to know this is a huge issue facing Christians today. Let me give you another our definition of morality. Your ability to discern right from wrong. The ability to have clarity and an active conviction on issues. What does the Bible say? What do you really believe on issues like abortion? When does life begin? Euthanasia. Definition of marriage. I mean, like, look what's going on in our culture. Who gave us marriage? God did. God designed it. You think he knows what it is? Yes, he defined it. But we're now smarter than God, and we can redefine it, and it's happening in our culture. Um, Our ability to hold to God's revealed standard of rightful sexual expression and identity, sexual identity, in the overwhelming force of this LGBTQ plus agenda that is just literally overrunning the world. Where will we stand? I want you to know it is a major issue facing Christians today. And when I talk about definition of morality, I'm also talking about your ability to really be after and want true justice, that you have a care for the poor, that you have, and I have the ability to treat people as every single person made in the image of God, to treat them with respect, with dignity, to overcome these issues and these residual effects of racism where we value every single person. I want you to know, definition of morality, it is a significant issue facing Christians. Let me give you the final one that I see, and that is Christ-centered vitality. Your life in Christ, will you be one who is truly in love with God, following his word, an authentic worshiper in spirit and in truth, valuing holiness of life, true walking and expression with God? Will that be you? Will you have a mature relationship with Jesus Christ? Or are you just going to settle for some sort of cotton candy, superficiality, Christianity? And when we talk about Christ-centered vitality, meaning Christ is at the center of our lives, but it's not just individually. Do you know that if you were a genuine Christian, you've been actually called into a body of believers? Body life, our ability to serve one another, love one another, care for one another, to actually see disciples made of all the nations for the gospel to go forth. I want, when we talk about Christ-centered vitality, 
It's our ability to connect with one another. That means as a church functioning like one, but I'll tell you something that the pandemic has done. The pandemic has kind of like totally reshuffled things. And all of a sudden, you've got a segment of people who are generally uh, considered true believers, likely are, but they no longer consider that they actually have to have any identity with a local body of believers. They can just do it on their own, on their own time. I want you to know that's not biblical Christianity. Our Christ-centered vitality is a huge issue. And then with this Christ-centered vitality, it means that we have to have the ability to engage those who have yet to trust Christ. We need believers who have a winsome faith, attractive. They're putting Jesus on display. Not that you're perfect, but that you've got a perfect Savior. You're unashamed of the gospel. You've got the ability to demonstrate love and truth. And when it comes to like the complex social issues in our world, we don't avoid them, but we actually are, we want a voice. We want people to know the truth. We want to see God glorified in every situation. And I'll just tell you what's happening. What's happening is that Christians are being silenced, sometimes with rather foolish arguments and false dichotomies. Like, let me give you one. This is a popular one. Faith and science. And so, this is how it goes. Oh, you're a person of faith? Well, you don't believe in science. You're just into some mythical fairy tale stuff, not based on reality. We're into truth, into science. And science is where where it's at. I want you to know, that is just ridiculous. We are people of faith, and we love science. Because science is our way of exploring and understanding the complexities of how God has made the universe At a macro level, and even at a micro level, at a cell and an atom, all of this leads to glory to God, worship, understanding, human flourishing. We are not like, it's not faith or science. We are faithful. We actually embrace science. We want to learn everything we can, but we know that the bottom line authority is God. And so, friends, we must engage with a Christ-centered vitality. And can I just share something with you? If you're a high school kid or a college student, you have the possibility of being very instrumental in seeing people come to Christ because that's my story. I knew two high school kids that were actually all in with their faith, trusting Jesus, who were engaging me with the gospel, and college students who did the same. Friends, what's as needed as a Christ-centered vitality? But you need to know these truths following God in a fallen world, you need to know that your future will challenge you. Well, let me give you the fourth thing you need to know. Your God will guide you and be with you. Look at verse 22. So Naomi returned with her and with her Ruth, the Moabitess, the daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And you're like, hey, wait, where's God in that verse? His name's not written but he is seen everywhere. The barley harvest. The fact that they're back in Bethlehem, house of bread, that Ruth is a believer. Wow, God is at work. And you need to know that no matter what challenges you face and who, are, who will not support you, God will be with you and he will guide you. The direction of your life will be determined by the devotion of your heart. And what you want to do as you go through this life is you want to be 
in a Christ-centered church, you want to have friends that really love Jesus and want to see you thrive. By the way, if you've got parents or friends that are encouraging in your faith, you've got student ministry leaders that want to see you grow, you might want to thank them. What a precious gift God has given you. You want to have pastors in your life that will not compromise on the truth, that want to teach you the word and how it applies to your life, how to grow in grace. You want to be in a church that is all about seeing the gospel of God go forth, disciples being made, and God being worshiped. And so I just want to end by asking you this question. Will you follow God in a fallen world? Will you? I'm talking about not just a decision for today, like that seems the thing to to do right now or or for this week. I'm asking, are you all in or are you going to be kind of half-hearted? Jesus said this, Matthew 4, 19. He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, I'll do it. If you're like, whoa, man, I don't even know what to do and how to be involved in the kingdom and how to make disciples and share their faith. Jesus says, listen, you just follow me I'll do the rest. I will make you follow fishers of men. You just follow me and watch me do my work through you. And sometimes following God in this fallen world, you know, even though we know it, we sometimes forget we're not alone. But I can tell you there are times where I just, I feel like, man, I feel like I'm alone. And it's hard and it's challenging and it's difficult. I know that I'm not. But I'm calling you to follow God in the good times and in the difficult ones. When you're surrounded by hundreds of believers like now, or when it's truly, it's just you in the game and the arena. You don't want to go through this life standing on the sidelines, riding the bench. I just want to ask, are you all in to follow him? I like to read presidential biographies, and and one of those that I've read multiple ones on is a guy by the name of Theodore Roosevelt. Um, He gave a a lot of speeches in his life. One of them he gave was called Citizenship in a Republic in Sorbonne, Paris, April 23rd, 1910. Um, You might be familiar with it because it's kind of received this popular known title, The Man in the Arena. I've always, every time I've read this, I've always been encouraged and motivated. And I'd like to read a part to you. He said this, It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that this place, so that his place, shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Friends, that's what we're doing. We're trusting God we are all in, and we're going to let the chips fall where they may. But our God is with us. He'll never forsake us, and he will guide us. 
We follow God by living by faith. And I want to give you a minute to pray and to talk with God about, is this your reality? So if you want to just bow your heads and close your eyes, and I want to give you a minute for you right now to wrestle with these principles we found from the book of Ruth, and for you in your heart to answer this question, will you follow God in a fallen world? Are you all in?